quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Uber and out. Uber loses its London license again. Musk's Cyber Monday. The Tesla CEO touts 200,000 Cybertruck orders. And here's to the happy couple. Tiffany says yes to LVMH in a $16 billion deal. It's Monday. Let's make a move. once again to first move happy merger monday and never mind getting excited about thanksgiving dinner later on this week today it's all about breakfast at tiffany's and the markets right now seemingly like it markets like mergers all u.s stock markets set to open higher that's following a strong session in europe too and it kicks us off of course for a holiday shortened trading week here in the united states we've also got charles schwab and td ameritrade confirming their 26 billion dollar tie-up too so we'll be watching the financials when the session gets started in around 30 minutes time as well we did see the major averages slipping late last week as well the s p 500 though and this is the key point still only around half a percent away from record highs history as well suggests we could get back there perhaps this week u.s stocks rise more than 80 percent of the time during thanksgiving week that's according to barons over the weekend something also to be thankful for in terms of trade negotiations too perhaps over the weekend China announcing new guidelines to help curb intellectual property theft. Remember, this is one of Washington's major sticking points. Beijing saying that stronger IP protections and penalties for IP theft may be coming shortly. The big question, of course, is whether or not that will be enough to prevent fresh tariffs being imposed on some $150 billion worth of Chinese goods on December 15th. I think this also probably helped the Asia session too, where Hong Kong stocks also out performed following a record turnout at local elections that saw big gains for pro-democracy candidates. All the details on that in just a few minutes' time. But for now, let's get to the drivers where there could be a lot less driving, in fact, in London. Uber hitting gridlock over there. The city stripping it of its operating license. The stock down over 3% here pre-market. Haddis Gold joins us now on the story. Haddis, great to have you with us. I saw Wedbush Securities this morning called it a seismic blow if this ban is upheld. Talk us through why, because I think the details on this are pretty alarming. 
Yeah, Julie, this would be a huge blow for Uber if they were to actually lose the license and not be able to continue driving in London because London is one of the top five markets for Uber. And it's one of the only markets outside of the Americas that is so big and so important for the company. Now, Transport for London announced that as of midnight tonight, the license would technically be expired because they say it's a series of regulatory breaches. The main issue, they say, is about driver identification. They say over the past few months, certain drivers have been able to upload their photos to other drivers' accounts and drive under those accounts, pretty much being unauthorized driver. They say some 14,000 trips were taken that as a result were uninsured. They say that there are certain problems around how Uber has been identifying drivers, saying that it's putting passengers' safety at risk. Sadiq Khan, the London mayor, said in a tweet, I know this decision may be unpopular with Uber users, but their safety is the paramount concern. Regulations are there to keep Londoners safe and fully complying with TFL's strict standards is essential if private hire operators want a license to operate in London. Now, Uber uh, has 21 days to appeal. So it's not like as of midnight tonight, Uber drivers will stop be able to be operating on the streets of London. And Uber says they will appeal. They're calling this extraordinary and wrong. The Uber CEO saying in a tweet, we understand we're held to a high bar as we should be, but this TFL decision is just wrong. Over the last two years, we have fundamentally changed how we operate in London. We've come very far and we will keep going for the millions of drivers and riders who rely on us. So, Julia, I don't think that Uber is going to absolutely stop operating in London. I could see this appeals process continuing to drag on, Uber doing something that will somehow satisfy the regulators here. This just goes to show you how important these fights between the regulators, these cities, and companies like Uber are playing out because all it takes is the city saying, nope, you don't have a license, and then Uber can have just billions of its valuation completely just wiped off. Yeah, even with these concerns, you have to assume that for uh, consumers it would be a real inconvenience. I have to admit, that was my first thought. Haddis Gold, great to have you on that story. Thank you for that, and we shall watch developments. All right, next driver. They're engaged. Luxury powerhouses LVMH and Tiffany getting together. LVMH is buying the jeweler for around $16.2 billion. Paula Monica is on this story for us. The largest luxury deal ever, Paul, here, and I make that... What a 37% premium to the closing price on the initial approach on October 26th. Wow, that's a price tag. Yeah, it's a lot of little blue boxes here, Julia, clearly. And yes, I mean, I think LVMH realized that Tiffany was kind of vulnerable. This is a company that has had some issues over the past couple of years with sales not being as good as hoped for for a variety of reasons. They had issues uh, way back in, uh, you know, the lead up to the 2016 election because of disruptions around Trump Tower, the Tiffany flagship store on Fifth Avenue. That was an issue back then. There's been problems internationally due to the sluggish economy globally as well. Fewer tourists coming to the U.S. also because of the trade war. So I think LVMH realized that they could scoop up Tiffany and Tiffany stock has done well in the past couple of weeks because of this speculation. But this is a merger that creates an even bigger luxury goods giant and will possibly make Bernard Arnault, the uh, head of LVMH, even wealthier and may even have him surpass Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos on the world's wealthiest rankings. He's inched closer to the two of them based on uh, the stock price move of LVMH today. Take a look there and, oh. you know, how he is within spinning distance of Bezos and Gates and well ahead of poor Warren Buffett at a mere $85.9 billion. Poor Warren. I know. I mean, it's so hard to be the Oracle of Omaha these days. 
There's so many different directions we can take there. I love your point about this providing LVMH with access to U.S. consumers, but also fast-growing Chinese consumers as well. And in return for Tiffany's, perhaps branding help with millennial customers here. But to your point, how close is it then on the global rich list rankings? Yeah, I mean, we will see what happens with the markets in New York as they're about to open. It looks like Amazon and Microsoft could rise along with the broader market on trade hopes. So that gap may uh, you know may widen again. But LVMH is inching higher, obviously, on the trade talk. I mean, on this uh, merger talk. And, uh, you know, if that means that, uh, you know, Arnaud's net worth jumps alongside LVMH, then he could inch closer to Gates and Buffett. I mean, Gates and uh, Bezos. Yes, lots of diamonds, lots of diamonds in those little blue boxes, however many of them there are. I will point out, though, as well, Credit Suisse had a price target on this at $140. Cohen said $160. So, you know, the other side of the coin here is perhaps they got it cheaper than they might have done. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. We like that story. We also like this story, though. The next driver, Elon Musk tweeting 200,000 orders for his Cybertruck, despite all the debate over the weekend, just a $100 deposit required in order to get that order in. Remember, we talked about this in Friday's show, the armoured glass window shattering during the demonstration. Claire Sebastian joins us once again on this story. Claire, there's so much to talk about, more details about perhaps why why that window shattered, also explanations for why the shape of the Cybertruck is the way it is. But what do we make of the 200,000 orders to start? Well, Julia, it's a good number, 200,000, but they're not orders, they're more like reservations. Uh, and as you said, uh, they only uh. have to put down $100 uh, to, 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 to get that, and it's fully refundable if they change their mind. Now, though, 200,000, good news, similar numbers to what we saw from the Model 3 when that first released. That was up to 325,000 uh, in a week, and we're only four days post uh, the launch of this one. So it does show strong demand. It does show the pull of Elon Musk's vision, despite all the controversy around the car itself and the launch. Uh, and as for that launch and the controversy around that, as you say, Musk on Twitter over the weekend setting the record straight. Take a look at the video he tweeted of his chief designer, uh, who before the event did again throw that metal ball at the window, uh, and it sure. and it worked. Yeah. So during the event, of course, you see it, it shattered, but they posted a video on Twitter before well, the event where it actually worked. So Musk trying to set hard. the record straight on that. He also tweeted in defense of the shattering glass, saying that when they took a sledgehammer to the side of the car, uh, that weakened the window and if they hadn't done that first that would have actually uh, worked with the with the glass so he said he should have done the glass first and the sledgehammer second but as for those orders sending the stock up uh, a little bit pre-market there julia so clearly that's some good news for for elon musk and for tesla yeah i have to say i do double takes when i see teslas driving down the street but this one i'm still on the fence with regards to the shape and size but no marketing, no PR, because we do it for him. Uh, it's quite fascinating, 200,000 orders, even at just $100. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we're following around the world. Hong Kong markets jumping after a landslide victory for the territory's pro-democracy movement in local elections. According to local media, the pro-democracy candidate dominated supporters of mainland China, winning almost 90% of the district council seats up for election. Nick Penton Walsh joins us now from Hong Kong. These local elections, Nick, were seen as a protest vote against China's rule and the approach that they've taken here. We clearly got that. The question is, does it make a difference here? 
to the standoff uh, here tonight, which echoes many over the past months, perhaps uh, less violent than we've seen. Let me explain what you're seeing behind me. Protesters who are originally gathering down towards the Poly U, where there are a handful possibly of protesters still inside uh, behind a police cordon, not being allowed out at this point. They decided that a wedding of a police officer was occurring in this hotel and moved down here and began shining laser lights, shouting up at the windows. They think they found some guests at that wedding and began, frankly, uh, giving them a lot of uh, aggravation. They've now moved inside and some media, it seemed, burst into the lobby. That seems to have diffused, but it just sort of shows the slightly chaotic, sporadic nature and the fury, frankly, that's still on the streets here. You might think that protesters would uh, be perhaps overjoyed to see this extraordinary result at the polls, where they've got 90% or so, according to local media, of the council seats, and also a 70% turnout. Let me just walk with our cameraman over here in this direction. The crowd seems to be rushing towards the street, because it's over here that police are gathering up on one of the many walkways in Hong Kong. There have been sort of abuse exchanged from the police over the past hours or so as well, as well as lights shone in each other's eyes. Now, Julia, the question really here that's absolutely key is this local council election has delivered Many saw a referendum's mandate to the protesters, saying essentially that despite the extraordinary disruption that they've wrecked upon Hong Kong, the damage to its infrastructure and to its economy that's now in recession, the people are still behind these protesters, regardless of the continuing violence. What we're seeing today, though, is karma scenes, echoing what we saw in the days leading up to the votes. Protesters very keen, it seems, to not do anything that could allow authorities to cancel the election. But still, the same standoff persists. The problem being that I think protesters may feel emboldened by this mandate, this extraordinary display, record display at the polls backing them up. But that hasn't translated overnight into a change in how Hong Kong is governed because these local councillors control waste collection, control various bus routes, but they don't actually have their hands on the levers of power. That's still Beijing very much. So nothing's really changed in how Hong Kong runs overnight, except that Carrie Lam, backed by Beijing, uh, has said she will seriously reflect on this result. China, however, have simply said Hong Kong is part of it and will remain so no matter what. So this is perhaps what we're going to see more of, anger on the streets of the police still, and possibly that may build as people who thought their vote changed Hong Kong realise that actually it didn't. Julia? Yeah, checkmate, it seems, continuing on all sides. Nick Payton Walsh, thank you so much for that update there. All right, let's move on. The Washington Post reports White House officials scrambled to justify President Donald Trump's original decision to withhold military aid to Ukraine. It cites emails and documents where officials showed concern the decision was made without assessing its legality. The revelations could be used by Democrats in their impeachment inquiry. Thieves stole scores of priceless exhibits from a museum in the German city of Dresden early Monday morning. Curators say diamonds, pearls and rubies were among the items taken from the Green Vault in Dresden Castle. It was home to one of the largest collections of treasures in Europe. Police say they set up a special commission to investigate. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But uh, coming up, surviving the trade war this Christmas, retailers hunker down and hope the future looks bright. Plus, what's in the stars for Libra? Hard questions in store for one of the founders of Facebook's digital coin. Stay with us. That's coming up. 
Welcome back to First Move, live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, where we are expecting a positive start to U.S. markets this morning. We've got merger news and, of course, trade optimism from the news over the weekend from China and intellectual property theft, I think, feeding into a broader sentiment here. We also had U.S. consumer sentiment numbers on Friday, which I want to point out to you. Economists call it the best consumer environment in some 20 years, helping to offset the pullback that we continue to see in U.S. business investment. We've also got to estimates on retail sales as well, that they could rise more than 4% this holiday season after soft sales last year. Let's get some context on this. Joining me now, Dryden Pence, who's Chief Investment Officer at Pence Wealth Management. Great to have you with us. Great to be here again. And happy almost Thanksgiving as well. Let's talk about the retail environment, sure. because if we compare what we're expecting to see this year with what we saw last year, the comparables have to be favorable, given that we were in the midst of a really strong stock market sell-off in December last year, or this time last year in particular. Well, both from the stock market and from basically the economy overall, I think we're in a better position this year than we were last year. I think that we're going to continue to move forward. I mean, most people forget that we have almost two million more people working this Christmas uh -huh. than we had last year. That's going to be a big driver. I mean, I think one of the underlying factors that have kept the economy going so well actually this year is the strength of the, the consumer. Are you surprised by that or do you think actually it ties very much to what we've seen in terms of jobs numbers and the fact that that has remained strong too? I think that's very, very true. More people are working, making more money than ever before. If you got a job this Christmas, you, be, you feel better than you did last Christmas, you're going to spend a little bit more. And so the economy continues to be this strong underpinning uh, that moves our, our overall economy and the markets forward, kind of regardless of what this headline volatility may be. Headline volatility meaning trade tensions. What exactly. happens if we see further tariffs come well, December 15? Well, I mean, there, there certainly is a chance, and the president has found his favorite weapon system. You know, and his favorite weapon system now is, is the tariffs or the threat thereof and the ability to execute on them. And so I think that that's going to be a key thing in the war. You don't know if it's going to happen on the 15th or not. If it does, there'll be some headline volatility around that. So we try to be ready for it. But in the end, as we've always said, trade wars end. And sooner or later, this is going to be over. Yeah, and if you trade the headlines on the, you got, trade, on the trade war situation, then you get chopped around it regardless. Yeah, it's very you, easy to get whipsawed, yes. You pointed out something interesting from earnings season, though, and that was that the number of mentions of tariffs of the trade war reduced compared to last quarter, and I do think that's important. It, it is important because now, I mean, tariffs are effective when they occur. They change from the previous period, but now people are beginning to get used to them. You're seeing manufacturing move out of China to other places to get around it. So there's some adjustment that goes through the supply chain and through the purchase chain. So it's not as big a deal this year as it was last year. And we're beginning to see fewer mentions of that. More mentions, in fact, of a strong U.S. dollar and FX headwinds. So is that a justification for continuing to look at stocks that have domestic consumer focus rather than make a greater share of their money internationally? We are still very focused on U.S. domestic stocks, stocks that make their make their money here in the United States from consumers in the United States, because that's the strength that we see. And we're still focused on that. It's going to take a little while for these currency things to adjust, even though the Fed is probably off the table now for a while. Amazon, one of your top picks. Still love it. Still 
love it. Still love it. Even though, and there are analysts out there that go, look, we love it too, but it looks relatively well priced here. It looks lofty. Perhaps we could see some kind of pullback for the technology stocks that have led us higher. Any of those justifications ring true for you? You got to get the great big things right. And the great big thing is that, you know, currently e-tailing and, and online is about 11% of consumer demand in the United States. Whereas you look overseas in other countries like China, it's 23% of the market. So we're continuing to see this dramatic growth of continuing online uh, retailing. And as that grows, that's going to do very well for Amazon. They're absolutely dominant in that space. And those are the companies that we like. Walmart? We like Walmart. Walmart and, and Target both have, are beginning to get this e-commerce piece right. And Walmart's in a good position to integrate, you know, gross, 25% of the, of the country buys their groceries at Walmart. They're in that store. So then you coordinate the e-commerce with the store delivery and all of those things. So we think Walmart long-term is going to continue to do very well and, and, and move forward in the space of e-tailing and make that a bigger segment of their business. You know, interesting, I just got back from Singapore and we were talking about e-payment systems, the rise of alternative payment systems and the challenge that they present to the visas and the MasterCards of this world. You like these names. Is the point here that you like them for the foreseeable future and these challenges are going to take time to really compete? Sure. sure. We, I mean, we, you know, Visa and MasterCard together control 85% of all the payments in the United States, 96% of all of those in Europe. Every time you make a transaction, they're getting a little piece of it. So as the economy continues to grow, they're going to do well. While there's a lot of other entrants into that market, all of them are still needing the same focus of the habitual payments and things like that. So while others are coming in, we think they've got a long way to go before they begin to challenge the absolute dominance of Visa and MasterCard you watch in that space. those market share numbers, and if they start to come down, perhaps you ask questions, but for now. Yeah, everything's got to fight every quarter. <laughs> Dryden, great to have you with us. Dryden Pence there, Chief Investment Officer at Pence Wealth Management. Now, as we were just mentioning in that conversation, China over the weekend signaling its plans to improve the protection of intellectual property. The government announced Sunday it wants to increase penalties for theft of IP and business secrets. The US, of course, and we've talked about this a lot, they've complained for years that China tolerates breaches of American companies' property. Property rights. Well, Christy Lou Stout spoke to the CEO of memory disk maker Micron Technology to discuss this exact issue. Listen in. We want overall a free market-based uh, economy. We want respect for intellectual property. We want to be able to absolutely engage with customer ecosystem here in China, across as well as all across the globe. And we, you know, continue to monitor the world trends today in terms of enabling a system that will allow us to do that and allow our semiconductor industry to do that as well. It's important for entire. Uh, semiconductor industry to be able to engage with customers worldwide and yeah. I'm certainly hopeful that US and China will be able to address their issues, their differences and that we will have opportunity to be able to do the business based on level playing field fair market principles as well as respect for intellectual property. Yeah, and given the lack of a resolution for the trade war and a political environment that's getting increasingly fraught, 
are you making adjustments in terms of your relationships with customers, in terms of your supply chain, um, in the event that this is not going to be resolved anytime soon? So we have, as I said, very well diversified set of customers across the globe. Yeah. Exciting part for our businesses that memory and storage, DRAM and flash are absolutely at the heart of all of the technology trends today. Yeah. AI to IoT to autonomous. We have a manufacturing supply chain that is well diversified across the globe. Yeah. Uh, we have manufacturing operations in 10 different countries. Yeah. And so we have a well diversified footprint that really enables us to be very resilient, yeah. very adaptive, very agile. And of course, we remain extremely focused in this exciting time of more need for more memory and storage on continuing to keep our eye on the ball with respect yeah. to technology innovation, product development, and engagement with customers to bring the full value of our portfolio to the customers. This is what we remain focused on, and this is what I think, you know, regardless of some of the ups and downs that may occur due to macroeconomic conditions or geopolitical issues, yeah. uh, I think, you know, technology has a way of powering through that, yeah. and memory and storage will absolutely be key in that regard in the future. Monday's Market Open is next. Stay with us. first move live from the New York Stock Exchange and that was the opening bell this Monday, a higher open as anticipated as we begin this holiday shortened trading week. Trade hopes, big merger deals all helping stock sentiment in this morning session so far. We're high by some uh, two-tenths of one percent. Also Chinese newspaper, the Global Times, says a phase one trade deal is very close, echoing what President Trump here in the United States said on Friday. China also, as we've been discussing, announcing new guidelines intended to help combat intellectual property theft. This is a big demand in the U.S. trade side of the negotiations here, too. So if that falls through, that could be a help for phase one dealing. Now, in the meantime, two biggest U.S. firms impacted by tariff uncertainty. Best Buy and heavy machinery maker Deere give uh, business updates later this week too so we have to uh, watch out for those what about today's uh, global movers well it's a merger monday and that's what we're focusing brokerage firm td ameritrade up nearly three percent after it agreed to be taken over by charles schwab We've been waiting for the uh, concrete the confirmation of that deal now for a while look at the sparkle on tiffany too higher by some 5.8 percent after they accepted a 16.2 billion dollar offer from france's LVMH and a shot in the arm for the medicines company. That stock rising fast after Novartis announced a takeover worth nearly $10 billion. Right now that stock up some 22.5%. Also among the big movers recently, some cryptocurrencies or digital assets. Bitcoin recovering slightly, as you can see, after plummeting to a six-month low on Friday. It's down over 40%, in fact, from its 2019 high back in June. Now back up over the $7,000 figure. Ripple down some 2.5% as well, around 21 US cents. Ethereum also under a bit of pressure, as you can see. Now, volatility may be a key feature of crypto at the moment, but one big player is betting that it's only a matter of time before the growth in e-payments fosters a more mainstream adoption. 
Facebook announced the launch of its own digital currency back in June, and the backlash was pretty fierce. Lost in the noise, though, was some of the detail about what their digital coin Libra actually is and what Calibra itself is and how that operates. Now, I sat down with one of the currency's co-creators, Christian Catalini. He's now a head economist at the Facebook subsidiary Calibra. Calibra? It's the financial services and software, the so-called wallet for Libra coin. It's also just one of 21 members of an organization that operates independently from Facebook. I began by asking Christian just for a basic explainer on what Libra and what Calibra is. The project was incubated originally within Facebook, but as you know now, uh, it's been uh, passed to the Libra Association. So yeah. at a high level, uh, Libra is a network and a protocol for moving value and, and essentially doing global payments uh, at a very low cost. Uh, so Libra and the association behind it will be the governance body behind this network that will allow anyone, uh, not just Facebook or Calibra, to operate on top of it. Uh, Calibra will be one of the many services that you will see on that network. In particular, it will be a wallet that will allow you to send money uh, across borders uh, extremely cheaply and conveniently. Uh, and, and so essentially, you know, uh, you can think of, if you're looking for an analogy, uh, email uh, you know, being the network and being Libra, and Calibra being one of the many services that allow you to send emails like Gmail or Yahoo Mail or, or many others. You basically looked at the global remittances system and said some people around the world are paying extortionate amounts of money. We have billions of users. We can facilitate cheaper, easier, quicker payments, perhaps better than anybody else. Was that the thinking? The thinking was, you know, starting from the problem. Uh, when you look at uh, 1.7 billion people today that are unbanked, and there's even more that are underbanked, uh, often the opportunity is really that uh, they have access to a mobile phone. So essentially they have an opportunity to be connected with a global financial uh, system. Uh, challenges being that there's no service or no product that can satisfy those needs and really drastically lower costs on cross-border payments. Uh, remittances average 7% today, but that adds a lot of dispersion. So in some regions, the average can be much higher, 20, 30%. And just imagine if you're sending money back home to your family uh, through a remittance service, and now you're taxed 30% every time you do that action. Uh, that's the problem we started from. Uh, that's where we you know, started thinking about a network that could make this cha cheap, fast, and convenient uh, on a global scale. Regulators have been skeptical about Facebook's cryptocurrency plans from the get-go. France and Germany have already said they will block the currency use in Europe. I asked Christian Catalini whether he's worried about the initial pushback and how much of that resistance is simply down to the Facebook factor. I think, you know, whenever you have a new innovation being proposed, uh, there's often pushback. Uh, we've seen this throughout history from, you know, telecommunications to early days of the internet to all sorts of new technologies. Um, we expected this phase and in fact we very much welcomed it. Uh, in the sense that this part of collaborative dialogue with a number of regulators on a global basis is one where now we have a chance uh, as Calibra but also uh, together with the other 21 founding members uh, of the association to really work together through the challenges and issues that a new system entails uh, but also to keep in mind you know, uh, what, what is the best way to achieve that mission to build on financial inclusion and really to deliver new types of services that we don't have, you know, that don't exist today. Do you think the reaction would have been the same if it had been a different company, if it hadn't have been Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg and the, the privacy issues that, that 
we've seen Facebook having to deal with over the past months and years. Do you think the reaction might have been different or do you think, to your point, people are afraid of new technologies? I, I think in general, you know, any, any player uh, that, that has a large user base would have been met uh, with the same type of scrutiny and so to some extent you can imagine that many of this dialogue we would have had later if it was a smaller company or a startup. Uh, that said, I think this part uh, is, is quite productive because it's essentially allowing us to think through what are the challenges that the system would face if it's successful in a few years. Uh, and so yes, the level of scrutiny is probably higher but I see that as a feature, not a, as a bug. You keep reiterating, and I want to, that there's a group of individuals involved in this now. This is not purely Facebook, and it is sort of separate from what Facebook does and is, even if it will be fostered within the technology of Facebook and the apps that, that are provided. You know, I think one of the things that I've certainly learned about Facebook is the utility value that it provides outweighs individuals' fears about privacy, about data, about information utility value comes first. Do you think that will be the same in this case when we're talking about financial information? The utility value and the value that we place on that is perhaps higher than the risk that we are giving up our financial information to a, a broader system and a big one like Calibra. So I think here there's an important distinction, right? So on the Calibra side, so on the wallet, First of all, there was a recognition that uh, users, especially in the US and in Europe, they don't want the commingling of social and financial data. And that's why Calibra uh, is essentially uh, separating uh, social and financial. And, and again, from a privacy perspective, I think what's really important to keep in mind is that people will have choice. So one of the key advantages of having a fully interoperable protocol like the Libra network and having governance that is really distributed. Uh, again, since you know, October 14th, Facebook is only one of 21 members with one vote. Uh, so you know, there's uh, many NGOs that are now around the table and they have the same governance influence uh, of Facebook. Um, you have a different governance structure. You have an open source code base, which makes the platform extendable and uh, also very open for others to build and improve on. And, and overall, this, this promise of interoperability will allow for all sorts of new business models to emerge and, and also for you know, different wallets to compete on different features. We're not just talking about price uh, and uh, you know, the, the cost of sending our remittance will be also on privacy. So I think uh, the goal was really to create uh, a vibrant ecosystem where eventually consumers will be able to choose you know, the product, the wallet, the financial intermediary that fulfills their needs. Now, among the concerns about Libra is the impact it could one day have on the financial system. Some regulators, and this was a hot topic in Southeast Asia when I was there, fear that given the dominance of Facebook's applications around the world, Libra, we're talking Instagram, we're talking WhatsApp, it could challenge central bank-issued currencies one day. I asked Christian Catalini about that potential threat. This is a part where I think there's a fair degree of misunderstanding. Yes. Libra was designed uh, from the ground up to be a complement to existing currencies. It's not meant to compete with the dollar or the euro or any other currency. It's meant to really enable new type of functionality on them so that, again, you can send that cross-border payment or that remittance with low friction and especially with low cost. Uh, in, in thinking about you know, Libra, uh, from an economic perspective, we always wanted to keep in mind a world where you know, central bank digital currency like a Fed coin are already available. 
those, those assets are not available today and that's why we have to go to greater lengths in thinking about how do we structure a reserve to deliver kind of a digitized version, for example, uh, of a set of currencies uh, like in the Libra basket. Uh, but you know, if those currencies were to become available, they could tightly integrate with Libra, mostly because Libra is really meant to be a payment network and something that allows it to move value. It's not meant to compete with central banks or with monetary policy. You're not trying to create an alternative to the US dollar for example. Uh, absolutely not. And in fact, the way we think about that public-private partnership is one where you know each sector can focus on what they do best. Uh, monetary policy is the province of central banks, and Libra is not designed to interfere with any of that. The assets behind Libra are assets that are generated, maintained, and controlled by central banks. On top of that, you can build a very efficient payment network and all sort of new applications where you know innovation can thrive, and all sort of new players from startups to uh, tech tech players to financial uh, players can come in and compete on a leveling playing field. Do you accept, though, that if we look at the monthly active users for Facebook, 2.4 billion approximately, if even just half of them decided that they were going to use Libra as a, as a digital currency or a digital asset here, the risk that you accidentally become an alternative to a US dollar or a euro. How does it exist? So from an economics perspective, there's actually very good reasons for why that shouldn't be the case, right? So, for example, if I'm paying for coffee domestically, why would I take on foreign exchange risk? Uh, again, taking a step back, Libra is really optimized for that cross-border experience. So transactions where already today you're incurring fees and there's like many intermediaries through the value chain, uh, they all charge their own spreads. Uh, and, and so when you look at the, at the end result, uh, consumers and users are really excluded because of cost. But anywhere in the world where I use a US dollar, arguably I could use Libra. Again, I, I think you know wallets and intermediaries, exchanges operating on the Libra network will all have to comply with local jurisdictions and local laws. And so I think in, in many cases it will be very similar to, to what you come to expect from modern payment systems. Christian Catalini there. All right, we're going to take a break. But up next, the threat of new tariffs looming over the holiday season. We'll take a look at how retailers are managing that risk. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The U.S. and China continue to drive markets with the on-again, off-again, on-again dance around the question of a phase one trade deal. The next pivot point comes just before the height of the holiday season. New U.S. tariffs are due to take effect on December 15th unless a deal is done to prevent it. And despite positive words from both sides, that seems right now far from certain. Our next guest is Rick Helfenbein. He's president and CEO of the American Apparel and Footwear Association. And he says over 90% of clothes imported from China and more than half of the imported footwear are already subject to tariffs of 15%. Fantastic to have you with us. Thank you. What does that mean in terms of pricing to the consumer? How much of that rise has been passed on? Well, the small retailers are being uh, hit harder than the big retailers. So consumers will feel it. They won't feel it full force. We're less worried about this holiday season than we are about uh, 2020, where there's no place to bury it or hide it or work around it. And we're very helpful that, you know, maybe these tariffs will go away. There's been some positive movement on the China side on intellectual property in the last 24 hours. Mm. The markets seem to be re reacting to that. 
Um, it looks like USMCA may be sidelined, so maybe there'll be more focus on China. And, That's uh, the Mexico Canada yes, trade yes, deal yes, as well. Yes, it yeah. seems that that may be delayed. That, I think that will move forward, but I think it's being held back a little bit. But if we go back, because there's so much in there as far as that the retailers are concerned. I mean, we have to keep making the point that it's U.S. companies ultimately that pay the tariffs. Yes. Whether or not they can negotiate with their Chinese suppliers and say, look, you need to drop your prices a little bit because to offset some of that 15% tariff, because otherwise we have to then pass on more to the consumer. Can you give us any sense of, you know, are we talking 5% increase in prices for US consumers and how much they're being able to negotiate on the Chinese side and say, guys, you need to drop your prices? Because both of these things are critical. Let me give you the reality of what really, really happened. Yeah. August 1st, we got the notice we might get hit with tariffs. Nobody knew exactly what or when, but we might get hit. So everyone jumped on a plane, flew over to China, and worked with their suppliers and said, look, we're stuck. 41% of all apparel coming to the United States comes from China. So, you know, we need to get through this holiday season. You know, the term Black Friday is when retailers go into the black. They make their money in the fourth quarter of the year. Help us, this week. help us, help us, help us, and we'll deal with next year, next year. So, uh, you know, some of it got passed through. Some of it got worked around. Some of it got moved. Like I said, we'll get through this holiday. This holiday should be pretty good. We're looking at about a 4% increase. Shop, shop, shop. Um, we're encouraged about that. But prices will go up. You come 2020, unless these tariffs go away, and I'm talking about what we call tranche 4A and 4B. The 4A is the 15% that hit us September 1. Yes. 4B, that might hit us December 15th. Unless those go away, I you will see dramatic price increases into next year. And remember, hats and handbags and gloves have already been hit, and they've been hit at 25%. That's painful now. Yeah, you make such a great point, though, that we got this sense that, that companies stockpiled, they negotiated for this period, but 2020, all bets are off if we still have these tariffs, which is a really important point. You know, we were just talking off camera about our various travels to, uh, to Asia. I was in Southeast Asia, and actually, one of the things that really hit home to me there was 28% of the world's manufacturing base is China right now. 0.2% is Vietnam. So when we talk about perhaps looking for other supply chains, it's simply not so easy, particularly when you're talking about things like shoes, which is skilled. It's yeah. skilled Sho labor. Sho shoes are 69% uh, of all shoes coming in America come from China. And on the apparel side, 41% of apparel comes from China, 14% comes from Vietnam. That's 55% between two countries. So go to Vietnam and you check it out and you find out they're at capacity. Yeah, they're maxed out. They're doing double shifts. They're not gonna do triple shifts. We can't get any more out of Vietnam. So we're kind of stuck. And that means the American consumer will ultimately pay that increase if it's passed on. That's why we're so hopeful that they will uh, back off on these tariffs. It's not a win for us in apparel and footwear if those tariffs don't go away. Yeah, it continues to be a real problem, even if they're just held where they are.
car, mm -hmm. for example. Fine, we don't get the December 15th, but even given what's happened already, it's a real problem. Okay, so predict forward then, 2020. You've said the larger companies can weather this better simply because they have more ability to cope with the, yes. the margin squish. But for some of the smaller companies, what are they saying to you? Are they saying perhaps they may even go out of business if this carries on? Well, you know, if you look at the retail landscape, it's not really pretty no, right now. Uh, in um, this calendar year, we've had almost, we've had 9,000 announced door closings. We had 5,000 last year. By the end of the year, we may have doubled the door closings from last year. So retail is suffering. It's suffering big time. We've lost a lot of square footage. Yeah. We've lost malls. Uh, we're running out of places to sell, and online is not picking up all of the, the fallout from brick and mortar. Yeah. So we're in the trouble zone, and we don't need any more trouble. We're, we're struggling to learn how to deal with this, quote, new millennial customer, and we're just sort of getting there with a nice mix between online and brick and mortar. But um, tariffs are not a, a, a help to the future. Yeah. And we need them to go away, and we need them to go away now. Yeah, bold message, sir. Great to have you with us. Rick Helfenbein there, President and CEO of American Apparel and Footwear Association. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a break. Elsa's back with more magic. Frozen 2, well and truly heating up the box office around the world. No, I didn't see it, but it's on my list. That next. Hang Seng, the outperformer, up 1.5%. Big gains for pro-democracy candidates in Hong Kong's local elections, I think helping stocks advance. What about a look at today's boardroom brief? India's Paytm, a privately owned digital payments company, reportedly raising $1 billion in fresh funding. The reports say the new investment values the company at $16 billion now. SoftBank's Vision Fund, already a backer of the firm, is said to have subscribed for more shares. HP reiterating that it won't accept a takeover from Xerox, saying the $33.5 billion bid significantly undervalues them. Xerox last week threatened to go ahead with a hostile offer if Hewlett-Packard didn't agree to friendly discussions. Frozen 2 broke a box office record for Disney this weekend. The sequel to the 2013 hit raked in $127 million. That's the highest grossing debut ever for a production from a studio. Disney is expecting more great things. Frozen 2 is on track to be the company's $6 billion film this year. I'll watch it this week. That's it for the show. I'm Julia Chesley. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Have a great Monday. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 